This episode is brought to you by Hearst Ranch, grass-fed beef raised on California's central coast. Now available online through Larder Meat Company. Learn more at hearstranch.com. Hello and welcome to Cooking Issues. This is Dave Arnold, your host of Cooking Issues, coming to you live on the Heritage Radio Network every Tuesday, whenever. And also, Happy New Year, everyone. Happy New Year. Uh, joined, uh, actually, one of the last times Nastasia's going to be joining us cause, uh, from California because she's headed back to our coast pretty soon, right, Nastasia? No. I thought you were coming back in January. <laughs> yeah, you that your might mind? be extended because my... Well, we can talk about it later. <laughs> Yeah, nice. Well, I mean, why would I'm, I go I'm, back and? I'm glad sit? to know that my business partner like doesn't even tell me to like you know on air. I hear you know n- no. All right, whatever. It happened like whatever. last night. Happy New Year! We got uh, John in his uh, Connecticut uh, booth, right? That's right. Yeah, and Matt in his Rhode Island hidey hole. How you doing? Hello, hello. Doing well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, all all undisclosed locations. Uh, I'm the only one who'll say exactly where I am. Lower East Side. Come down to Grand Street. We'll fight. I'm kidding. We won't. Actually, I'm, um, sure, I'm sure Joel will say where he is, too. He just joins. Oh, hey. Uh, long time uh, longtime friend of the show, Joel Gargano, in here from uh, Chester, Connecticut. How you doing? I'm doing great. I'm actually home in Clinton right now. Oh, uh, wait. I thought you were in Deep River, your house. You nah, moved to Clinton? We, we moved. We, uh, we bought a house in Clinton because, you know, kid and all. Is it because when you were in Deep River and you went to Chester, all the Chester people were making fun of Deep River constantly? And so you're like, I can't live here. We can't do it. <laughs> a lot of a lot of my staff grew up in Deep River, so they they're, they're pretty. They have some strong feelings about that argument. So. Yeah. So for for those of you that don't know and don't care, like on the left side of the Connecticut River, which is, it's not actually the. I don't. You know, I don't. I always thought it was the most important river in Connecticut, but Connecticut's got like three or four main rivers. Anyway, Connecticut's one of them. Uh, and uh, on the left side of it, there's these little towns, like really nice little towns, one of which was Chester, where I used to have a place and where Joel's restaurant is, Grano Arso Restaurant. And then just south of that is Deep River, and this town, ha- these two towns have kind of a rivalry in the Chester people, even though Chester is like also like a nice, kind of, it's not like ritzy, it's just nice. You know what I mean? Like, like it's like, it's kind of ideal for someone like me. It's not like, uh, it's not like the Upper East Side. It's like if you divided New York into zones, where, where do you think Chester would be? In New York City. <laughs> Where, where would Chester be? Well, I mean, yeah, um, Murray Hill. I, I, no. would say, I, I would say probably <laughs> maybe maybe West Village. West Village, yeah. and then and then that would make Deep Deep River. Then would be like the Bowery or something. Alphabet City, maybe. Yeah. All right. Back when Alphabet City. Back when you could still get murdered in Alphabet City. So anyway, uh, also uh, congratulations on the uh, relatively new one in your family, there, Joel. Thank you. Her name is Swan, and she's uh, she's she's an absolute gem. Oh, beautiful. Awesome. Great. Yeah, well, it's uh, all joy. Now, uh, before I get a couple of questions uh, that uh, we had, we had, by the way, so uh, Joel's an expert in uh, making both his own pasta and also in grinding flour, fresh grinding. We had a couple of questions in. So rather than me speculating and kind of like, you know, uh, weaseling my way through these two questions that we have, we figured we'll just have uh, Joel on. We'll ask him. And then you, you, get the, you get the answer from someone with some experience. Uh, and secondly, uh, we wanted to check in and uh, see how, um, what, the, what the kind of current COVID environment of business is up there in uh, Connecticut. 
Well, I'll, I'll start with the business stuff. Um, so <clears throat> way, way back when, way back when last March, um, everyone was kind of in you know freak out mode. So um, it, it took a little while for us to figure out what, what we were going to be. Um, so once we figured out that we can do some family style takeout stuff, um, you know, that, that eventually worked out pretty good until we were able to reopen and do a parking lot restaurant, which actually was, was pretty great. Um, and Connecticut, at least where we are in Connecticut, um, people are pretty respectful. So that was, that was kind of nice to see that people did the masks and didn't, didn't complain that much. Uh, we had once in a while, you get a, a few one-offs who just want to, uh, bark a little bit at the host, but, um, but other than that, it's, it's been pretty good. That's the crew uh, from Newington. Berlin and Newington came in. Yeah, yeah, they just they they, they roll right on, roll yeah, yeah. right on in with um, particular hats on their heads and uh, say certain things to our staff. So, so ju- just so you guys know, like coastal Connecticut is an extension of the line between. No offense to coastal Connecticut, but it's an extension of the line between New York and Boston. All right, so like like that's who when people are like complaining about us East Coast elite people like like they're part of that whether they're blue collar or whatever they're part of the thing that the rest of the country hates right that's us but then like literally literally 35 minutes to 45 minutes north just above what's the middletown line if you're going up the connecticut river from the from the long island sound right it completely changes coastal coastal connecticut's gone you know what I mean? It's like, am I right about this, Joel? What do you think? You are exactly right. Um, and I'll, I kind of leave, I'll, I'll leave no comment on that. But yeah, there's, it definitely goes into a different zone, uh, just a few miles north of Chester. That is, that is absolutely correct. So, so by the way, the be- like, my favorite place in Connecticut yeah. is right where the line is a place called Portland, Connecticut, which is a real rundown, like, well, I shouldn't say that, but it's a community that has seen better economic days. It's across the river from Middletown, right? And mm-hmm. in it is the my favorite water park ever, Brownstone. Have you gone to Brownstone, Joel? There's a water park up there? I had no idea. Oh, my God. Once this COVID is over, you got to go to Brownstone. It, it is a Brownstone quarry where they quarried, you could guess brownstone and uh at some point i think in the 20s or 30s of the last century the it flooded and couldn't be unflooded because they build quarries next to rivers a lot so it's right on the other side of the connecticut river from where middletown where that old bridge is and uh it flooded and no one knew what to do with it so at one point someone was like hey let's open a water park and it is it is amazing water park it's got like i don't know how but there's like an amazing group of people everyone's fun it's like, you know, like all, all different kind of people, all different kind of ages. You, and the only and it's not like Action Park. If you've seen if you ever heard of Action Park in Vernon, New Jersey or seen the recent documentary on it, the most dangerous water park of all time where I actually went when I was a child. Uh, you know, everyone wears a vest. Everyone's fairly respectful, but it's still kind of crazy. Like you could still jump off of a off of a cliff in a in a quarry into into water. Amazing. Go go wow. when when the world reopens. But anyway, hey, John, we should grab our Speedos and go next weekend. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, yeah, I don't know whether I don't know when they're gonna open. I, I was gonna go this summer, but obviously not. You know what I mean? If any of you are from the area and want to go, the the power move once people are allowed, once people would ever be seen near water that someone else had been in, 
The power move is to get a group together and rent one of the gazebos. There's gazebos that, like, the entire place is decks. And you walk out on these floating decks, and then you can kind of just do whatever you want. You make a day of it, right? And you can bring your own food. Don't bring liquor, I don't think. But you can, I don't think. But you can bring your own food, and you rent this gazebo, and your crew then owns this gazebo for the day. You could just camp out. You spend a whole day there. Wow. It's like the most dad suggestion I think I've ever heard you say. Hey, it's fantastic. Look, I believe it. Yeah, yeah, no, no. It's just, it's funny. For those of you that don't know, you're never going to see me. I wore a bathing suit to this place. I did still wear a shirt because, you know, I don't, I don't show skin in public. But, like, they got me to wear a bathing suit and I was happy to be there. So, for me to be happy to be at a place like this, I mean, that says a lot. And, unlike Sesame Place, no offense, Philadelphia, this place does not smell like a poorly attended uh, male gym locker, right? (laughs) You know, or like, you know, when you leave a towel and you wash the towel and then you don't dry the towel and then a week later you open the dryer and you're like, oh, that, right? Sesame Place, I'm not saying it smells like that, but it smells like that. You know what I'm saying? Sesame Place is a water park near Philadelphia. Anyway, I love Sesame Place. No offense, but, you know. That's not, yeah, that's not really coming across in that description. What, the lack of offense? The one negative thing I'll say about Brownstone is this. Uh... That when you are approaching Brownstone, you're like, whoa, I don't think I'm going to like this because, because right next to it on the other side of the, of the street, right on the, where the river is, are like a bunch of like uh, oil storage tanks. Because for those of you who have never been to Connecticut, much like New Jersey on the waterfront, at some point in the 20th century, someone decided, hey, what if we took everything we had that was pure and beautiful and surrounded it with petroleum? <laughs> right. And so like anywhere you go in Connecticut where there should be beautiful, wa- except for where Nastasia's house is, not that she's ever going to go back, apparently, although I didn't know. But everywhere you go where there's supposed Steve, to be something- I'm going back. Oh! I want to clarify to everyone. I'm going back. It's just the idea of sitting in my house on the water by myself in the winter and then being out in the sun near my family is like, you know. Yeah, the choice mm-hmm. seems pretty clear. Wait, Nastasia, Nastasia, not now, but tell me when we can tell the story of the of the windows. Anyway. You can tell it. Yeah, and that's the other part of it. You can tell All right. it. All right. Well, well, let's finish this. Every single beautiful place in Connecticut, at some point, someone has tried to ruin it with, it, with either a raised highway where they take 95 and, like, cut through all this beautiful stuff, or they put some sort of giant uh, gasoline storage there. So you can kind of – when the wind changes direction at, the, at Brownstone, but once you're in the quarry, you don't smell it. But, like, when you're up top, you're like, eh, eh, eh. You know what I mean? Anyway. Uh, so business, uh, you're saying they're being respectful, but like what, what's happening now that it's turning wintertime? So, okay. So obviously we had to close out our big parking lot <clears throat> restaurant. Um, so we put a few tables out front and most people don't want to sit outside. We get a few people that don't mind. Do we have our little propane heater? You ever see these ones? You can get them at Home Depot. They look like uh, like Johnny Five from Short Circuit. And they have basically, it's like two big eyes and there's a propane and just lights up. We just Wait. wheel them over to the table Right. Um, and they can get their personal heater and they're like 50 bucks a piece. But they're not the overhead. They're not the overhead umbrella infrareds that. Yeah, they don't have that kind of money, man. Yeah. <laughs> Plus, those things are like twice the cost of what they used to be. You know what they're doing in New York City now? I don't even know how these are legal because they've, they've, New York City has converted outdoor dining back to indoor dining. So the, the coolest setup I saw is someone bought a bunch of those. Uh, portable greenhouses and just stacked them one next to each other yep, so yep. To keep, yeah to keep the heat in and so here's the thing like all of those people are indoor 
And then the poor server has to show up and deal with a bunch of hopefully for the you know bank accounts of everyone involved, extremely liquored yeah. up. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like people like spewing crap into the server's face. I still feel bad for the for the servers, but that's yeah. how we're I mean, dealing this, with it. This is definitely something that um, has shown a lot uh, of our industry and, and a couple of ways what we're capable of doing. Obviously, we you're, we're made to think on our feet, but on the other side of things, financially, that um, you, you get a little more thrifty than than you think you could be. You know, um, I didn't think that we'd be offering um, the, the food that we're doing out in a parking lot on picnic tables and people would be throwing down upwards of, a, you know, $100 a person before, you know, service charge or gratuity or whatever. And they're happy to do it sitting on a picnic table, which is amazing to me. So that, that's the kind of community that, that we do have. And we have the plus side. And I know there's a lot of other restaurants in the state and, you know, the country that are doing a lot worse than we are. So it's um, such great people to come support us through you know, all this stupid mess. But now that it's cold out, we have people inside. It's not the most popular thing, to be honest, um, you know, but our staff is really good and they take you know, the utmost precautions. And um, if anyone gives any sass, we give it right back and or kick them out. Funny story, we had a guy show up the other day, right before service started and wearing a body camera attached to a lanyard and started uh, picking a fight with the hostess. And she's 16 years old, by the way. It's oh, like, geez. so you're a grown ass man picking a fight with a 16 year old hostess about uh, putting a mask on. So we're like, okay. <laughs> so these things and, and, the, and the body camera is just so he can prove to all of his friends what a douchebag he is. I'm pretty sure on it, this was like, he was trying to collect content for his Facebook page or something. Um, so, uh, it was uh, our manager Haley came over and uh, squashed you pretty quick, um, and I had just turned the corner as this was happening. And uh, the funniest part about this was we had someone picking up a takeout order um, while this was happening, and the bottom of the bag was wet. There was two quarts of marinara sauce in that bag that just hit the floor, exploded oh, all over the host area while this guy is harassing our young hostess. So if you can imagine this moment of like, what, the, what is going on with you? Uh, it was, but those, those, those things that happen are so few and far between that, you know, when they do, we're just kind of like, you're, you're crazy, just, just get out. So when, we, when that does happen, we just, we kick them out. So it's not a big deal. A lot of fun cleaning up uh, marinara sauce and- uh, well, Luigi came yeah. 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 yeah, hopefully it was in a court and not in glass. Um, yeah. 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 Wait, what, let me ask you a quick, why can't, like, you, you ever notice with court containers, and for those of you that, that they gotten worse. Have you noticed this? They gotten worse. Yeah, they are more brittle than they used to be. It used to be so. Yeah. Core containers, like where we come from over here, everyone uses core containers, and they're not environmentally unfriendly because you use them eight million times. And by the way, for any of you that order soup from people or whatever, and someone hands you a core container, don't throw that away at home. You can use that thing forever, right? The one caveat is is that if you freeze in them, they are extremely brittle. But recently, the core container batches I've been getting have all been brittle, even at room temperature. You can't, you know, when you got some kind of solid and you gotta, you gotta squeeze, you gotta get a little squeeze to get it out. Yeah. You can't, you can't do the squeeze anymore. You get, you give a little squeeze, the whole thing shatters. Game over. Yeah. And well, and, they, and, and they, they separate in it like there's a disc line separation around the bottom that I've been cracking all the core containers on. I don't get it. How they're do we get to the bottom of this? They're polypropylene. They, nothing should happen to them, right? Like, the, like, Polypropylene is a great plastic for this, uh, uh, for this because a it's la lack of you know plasticizers. The fact that it doesn't leach, 
the fact that it can handle high relatively high temperatures, like like way past boiling, um, without degrading, like all of that. But they they and but suddenly they've they, these have just been so disappointed. Just we so found we found one brand um, from from our one of our vendors, Trimark, that you have to like talk. You have to like call call our sales rep and say, "Give me this specific one, or else they'll just pick whatever and send it." Right? Because they got a bunch of different brands. Right. But this one seems to be of of the old style, so I can give it a, a solid squeeze, and it doesn't shatter. I'll get, I like that. I'll give you an example of this just happened to me last week. So Dax, who's 15, like, of course, I mean, kind of like me, actually, fidgets constantly, right? He fidgets constantly. So we're at the dinner table and he's taking, I had a, you know, we, so you don't just buy quarts, you buy quarts, you buy pints and you buy uh, some eight ounces, right? So that you can efficiently uh, store things with different quantities. So I think I had an eight or a 16, you know, uh, and I had this Greek yogurt in it. And Dax kept on spinning the, the, the yogurt around on the table. I'm like, Dax, nothing good can happen from spinning this. The only things that can happen are bad things, right? Spillage, whatever. So he kept on doing it. And so finally I went whack and I hit the container down onto the table to stop it from spinning and shattered it. Yogurt everywhere. <laughs> yogurt yeah. everywhere. Definitely yeah, classic, classic me story. I was like, I told you nothing good could happen. You're, and it ends up what happened is you pissed your dad off. He hit the yogurt container down under the table. Now there's yogurt everywhere. See, see. So I was, I was, I was. Are these things I have to look forward to. Yeah, yeah. yeah well, you know. Uh, okay, so these are the cooking questions. Uh, although, hey, core containers was relatively cook, cooking related, cooking tangential, cooking adjacent. So I feel like we've gotten some cooking stuff in. And Nastasia, remind us, we'll talk windows at the end. Uh, Trevor, I have two questions for you. Trevor Driscoll wrote in, and uh, I was wondering about the virtues of fresh milling flours for pastas. Have you experimented with milling your own grains for pasta doughs, and does it generally have a similar impact uh, as it does when you're baking bread? Cheers, Trevor. And P.S., we gave him some advice that the rice cooker was, in fact, not a, uh, uh, what's it called, just a superfluous luxury, and that they would use it more and more. And he says, P.S., the rice cooker has become a crowd favorite, and that purchase is no longer contentious. Well, I'm glad you're never going to really – I've never met anyone who's like, I wish I didn't have this rice cooker. I never use it. Crazy. Anyway, uh, so you got, you got an answer for me, Joel? Sure. So um, hi, Trevor. Well, we've, we've done a bunch of different stuff at the restaurant, uh, Grana Arso, with uh, freshly milling grain. Um, when It was part of how we opened. It was part of the concept of the restaurant. So we went through a few different iterations. Um, I think the 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 two camps that you're going to fall into, and I'm, I'm assuming he's a he's a home cook. He's probably going to be making sheeted or rolled pasta, not extruded machine extruded pasta. So um, I'll I'll go into the extruded stuff first, just so he has a point of reference. But the the problem you get into, and it's not impossible, uh, the problem you get into if you did 100% a freshly milled flour um, through an extruded pasta machine is that if it's not milled finely enough they'll get caught in the dyes um, and then you're having a, a big, big problem. So what we do is we actually sift out uh, the brand and germ after the mill. And we just have a tabletop mill, it's a, it's a Kumo um, tabletop mill. Um, and we set it to as fine as possible and pass it through and then sift out the, the chunkies. Um, and then we use that flour um, to make our pasta dough. The hydrations do change. Typically, you just a, a touch more water, even if you're sifting. Um, so you got to play with your ratios a little bit. 
But anyway, it is possible. The only problem you run into with uh, using freshly milled flour is that your product, uh, if it sits, as we call in the restaurant, on mise en place, if it sits for too long, uh, it will start to oxidize um, the changes. Um, in fact, we've noticed it gets gummy. So I would suggest if you are extruding. Um, you is, that, little, is that, you think that's due to enzymatic action? I, I, I don't really know. Um, it could be. I'm, I'm thinking it's like partially fermenting even maybe. I don't, I don't really know. Uh, because we're not at the restaurant, we're not freezing extruded pasta, so it just sits in the cooler until we use it. So you imagine, you know, with your prep schedules, let's say you have enough pasta for two days or three days sometimes, and you or you want it to carry the weekend and see how it is on Tuesday. Uh, it has completely changed color. Uh, it gets dark brown, um, and it's it's really not that appetizing. So yep. uh, what we've done at the restaurant um, is actually much lower the amount of whole grain. Um, freshly milled flour we put into and use mostly semolina and we've adjusted this since we opened uh, just because of that because the, the product was degrading so quickly but did, like uh, when you did cook it though right away did you like so like fresh milled wheat in bread just tastes different I'm not saying it's better I like it a lot that's what I use now but it's just tastes different from AP flour and makes whole wheat flour that you buy seem like like some sort of like terrible bad joke that people are playing on you right like yeah. do, do you get yeah, any course. taste effects like that yeah. in, in oh, yeah in yeah, yeah i mean it, it definitely it definitely tastes uh again you know like it, I, I guess it depends you know like what, what kind of flavor profile you're looking for pure semolina uh just regular general mill semolina has a has a almost nostalgic flavor to most people it's it's delicious on its own right and it's and it's kind of neutral to whatever preparation you're doing Versus if you're going to uh, freshly mill grain, you know, you're going to want that to be a, a predominant flavor and not just kill it with, you know, your your, your marinara sauce uh, or, or a, a, like, a, like a basil pesto or something that you would make at home normal. So I would I would probably do different preparations if you are going to do that to highlight uh, the flavor of the grain. Now, that, that's just extruded stuff. But with freshly roll, uh, sorry, sheet, sheeted pasta um, or rolled pasta, um, typically you're making a, a dough with eggs in it. Um, that you can get away with with whole grain without sifting the flour, um, but you are going to have just a little bit less pliability, I think, with the dough. Um, but definitely, you have to up the hydration or the amount of uh, egg you're putting in. At the restaurant, you don't regrind. Yeah, you don't regrind the brand. Even at a fine setting, the brand's pretty big. If you're going fine on your rollers, it's going to cause tear out sometimes, right? Correct. Yeah, and we've done that. We just think because we actually at the restaurant we have other purpose for the brand of the germ, so we we find other things to do with it. We actually reload it back into our bread. So let's say we're making a pasta dough, right. and we sift out the brand of the germ. We'll take we call it the uh, the, the I, I forget what my my baker calls it, it the scrap or something. Um, he the trim of it, and he he takes it and and throws it back into the bread. So it's it's had a purpose. Um, uh, but for for the roll pasta. Uh, that's a better bet for the freshly milled flour. Um, I would I would suggest it, but if you're not going to use it right away, put it in the freezer. So um, we actually do this as practice at the restaurant. Um, it does not degrade the quality, in my opinion, of uh, of raviolis, all that kind of stuff, because we're going through it in a day or two anyway. Um, all it does is set the dough, so it doesn't, you know, the moisture doesn't leak out of the filling and, and yada yada. So actually, uh, using freshly milled flour helps the structure of the ravioli. So it actually, for the dishes that we do, it actually helps. And we do this with rye. So we add up to 10% of freshly milled rye. That's Whoa, been that's crazy. Rye is so sticky. You don't have problems with it? Not at all. 
it actually firms up the dough. So, but again, we're only using 10% and the rest of it is double zero. So uh, that, that amount actually firms the dough up enough. You have to up the hydration again, just, just a tad. Um, and we get a fantastic product out of that. You make great garganelli, uh, um, you know, tagliatelle, fettuccine, yada, yada, all that stuff. Now, Nastasia, you're not against fresh egg pastas and fresh ravioli, right? Right. I'm not, yeah, you're okay. But, you know, you know, I'm sure Joel knows by now that you're, in general, you are a commercially produced dry pasta lover and have taken a stance against most fresh pastas, true? Right. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Why? I just really don't like them. And it feels like if you're going to have a shape other than uh, like fettuccine with uh, bolognese sauce or something, uh, it should be dry. Because when I eat shapes, it's just like a big mound of dough in your stomach. Mm-hmm. And I spent a lot of time in Italy and going back and forth. And it's like, I love dried pasta. I prefer well, What about like tortellini and brodo? You know, you got... Noodle, yeah, you know, stuff pasta. Sure. Really That's tiny fine. I said stuff pasta is fine. Yeah, Nastasia's I mean, not against anything. things that she thinks are in, are intended to be fresh, right? Yeah, that is intended to be fresh. You can't do it any other way. I see, I see what you're saying. I see what you're saying. Okay. Yeah. Okay. yeah. Also, Nastasia, the way that I have received what you have said, not just about this argument, but all arguments are like sometimes big companies do a great job. Let them do it. Yeah. That's a good point. That's a really good point. You know, and actually, Dave, I'm going to make a plug. We're opening up a dry pasta company this year. So ah. that's, that's, a big, that's a big thing. We, we purchased the equipment. We have this gigantic pasta extruder um, from Pasta Biz that we got in a drying cabinet. So that's, that's the real deal way to do it. Um, the guys at Pasta Biz are great. So well, I, maybe I, I uh, and, and help us kind of source all this stuff out. I, I, I anxiously anticipate uh, uh, trying some of your uh, wares. And if you can, I would love to hear, because you, you, I mean, Nastasia won't give any proprietary information out, obviously. But like, you know, if you talk to some of these old school uh, Italians, they're like the drying rate, the drying rate. But then they won't tell you what exactly the effect is or what they do because everyone has their secrets and they won't tell you so i'm hoping that you know maybe if you do some experiments on drying rate on these pastas that you can you know maybe tell us what's actually going on with this stuff might be fun it's i've never dried pasta commercially before we've done you know sit by the windowsill kind of thing um and that usually does not yield great results so especially with extruded pasta and the low hydration it's actually really difficult um to do it so the drying cabinets are pretty dialed in there's cycles it goes through and it's like super hot uh, you know, it goes up to like 130 degrees or something. I'll, I'll know once once I get the damn thing plugged in um, and figure it out. But it's sitting in a crate right now. Anyway, so that's kind of where we're going, and it's a good opportunity for us to try to transfer um, the style of pasta we do at the restaurant and really see if it works with drying. You know, and particularly using rye because we love using rye in our pasta. It's in our bread. It's all the stuff. Um, it's one of our favorite grains to do because when we when we uh, do our toast on it. Um, the grana arso kind of flour, instead of burning, you know, quote unquote, burning the flour, we toast the whole grain in a cast iron pan until it smells like uh, you put Cheerios in the toaster oven. You know what I mean? They get kind of this burnt, odie kind of smell. We chill it and then pass it through the mill. Um, and you get a really fantastic, flavorful product. Um, so we're going to try to see how that translates into drying. It might not work. We don't know. We'll find uh, out. Well, I, again, I anxiously anticipate. Now, you, there's one more question for you. And, uh, 
before that, I'm going to like insert here a little, because there's a lot of confusion, I think, even people who know a lot about exactly what semolina is and durum and why you would use it. So Nastasia, expert on this from the, you know, all the pasta business, Joel, you are, but I'm going to insert something and then you can argue about what I say. <laughs> so uh, semolina, right, is a, it's a grind, right? So it's a, it's a grind. And what it is, is it's got very few fines in it. In other words, like it's, it's not supposed to have any dust or very little dust as possible because you don't want to have um, a lot of uh, dusty, damaged starch because that stuff absorbs water like a mother, right? Mm-hmm. And so it's going to like make you have to have a higher hydration dough to make it machinable, right? Uh, and, and so then the other thing about Durham is is that uh, durum wheat, which is a wheat now, not a grind. So you can have durum flour, right? You don't have to just only get semolina out of it. You can make durum flour, right? But typically people are buying the semolina from durum. Durum is an extremely hard wheat, right? But the gluten in it, right, is not such that uh, it's going to stretch back as much as a because you could also whip mill semolina from a regular like spring or winter hard wheat. But mm-hmm. if you do that, you're going to get so much like shrink back on your stuff that you're not going to be able to kind of extrude properly. You need, you need it to hold together, have enough protein to have good bite, but you don't want it to be snapping back. You don't want the, 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 you know, the snap back that you would get in something where the, where the gluten system was extremely uh, stretchy, right? So, so that's why you want an extremely hard wheat. And by the way, the hardness of wheat, uh, people associate it with high protein. Not true. It is a different protein. It's not the gluten protein that makes the grains hard. Uh, And they've done the research over the past 15 years. It's a different set of proteins that cause the the wheat to be hard. You want it to be very hard so that it shatters into these kind of large chunks and then uh, the, or, you know, not large, but these little, these semolina chunks, which can then be formed into a relatively low hydration and also not, you know, you can stretch it out, but it doesn't snap back dough. And that is why durum semolina is the sine qua non of pasta flowers. Would you, both of you say that's relatively accurate? Accurate. Yeah. Um, all right. So the second question uh, uh, pasta related question. And before I get to this, I had another question. Someone wants to start grinding more meat. Uh, I have the question here somewhere while you have it. Do you have any, any recommendations for, you know, relatively inexpensive, like, you know, next level up from, uh, the KitchenAid meat grinder that, you know, maybe, I don't know, like the Hobart is what everyone gets the, 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 you know, the, the, you know, the, the Hobart that's about the size of a, of a small ice cream machine. But is there one that's uh, cheaper that works that you've tested or, so no, you- we, we go we go traditional Hobart. In fact, I think the cast iron thing that attaches to my 20-core mixer is probably 30 years old. But the um, and, it, and it works great. Although I will, and I, I don't have a recommendation, but I will put in a formal complaint to KitchenAid that the food grinder attachment, the blade on that thing, is like basically a paper clip uh, that they've melted down into make it look like uh, some sort of uh, uh, like knife that you're supposed to put in this thing. It's completely garbage. But you know what's really good for is that if you're going to make an emulsified style sausage, it actually does a good job at mashing the meat and the fat together. Because so it's such it a smear machine? <laughs> it does the opposite of what it's supposed to do. But if you're making an emulsified sausage, it actually does. It'll actually do okay. 
No, nice. All right. Yeah. Zach C uh, put this chat room question in before. Uh, mid-pandemic, I was somehow able to convince my partner that an Arcobaleno AEX5, now that, people, is like, if you live in a house or want a small pasta machine in a line on uh, in, a, in a restaurant, right? It doesn't have a lot of output, but... I've been jonesing for one of these things for years. It it mixes and then extrudes, and you can get all kinds of cool dyes. It is, uh, as the British would say, an awesome piece of kit. Anyway, uh, it, I was able to uh, get the A, uh, AEX5 uh, as a critical tool to survive sheltering in place. It's been amazing. One thing I find challenging is that the only real recipes for extruded pasta are aimed at commercial slash industrial scale, where the main goal is to end up with dried pasta. So this is going back to our dried pasta question. Do you know, and this, since you have not yet been a dryer, Joel, you will know this, do you know of any resources that have uh, recipe guidance for extruded fresh pastas? I want to better understand how things like different flours, eggs, moisture, etc., impact the final product. And then a bonus question, uh, I'll, I'll probably handle this one, uh, unless you're when you guys are welders. I have a tank of welding argon at my apartment because uh, sometimes a man's got a TIG. My roommate and I hypothesized that we could displace the air in an open bottle of wine with the argon uh, to prevent oxidation. It didn't work. Should this theoretically work? Yes, it should. You're just not delivering it right. All right, now, back to the pasta question. Oh, wow. Sometimes a man's got a TIG. I like that. Um, First of all, like, like when you run a TIG, there's a certain amount of air in the line. So yeah. if you have the argon thing, if you're actually using the torch, the, the TIG tip, Right, you got to run it for a little while. Don't, you know, you want make sure that you're not going to build up pressure in the bottle. Some of those early argon things will cause the bottle to shatter. So you're going to want to run it for a while before you even do the injection, and then you're going to want an in and an out, and you want the out to be outside of the bottle and the in to be in the bottle so that it's trans transferring all, all the stuff out. Anyway, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> so uh yeah so uh, this is this has been a sort of uh, i wouldn't call it an argument but something inside my head that knocks around a lot why extrude pasta that's supposed to be dried um and but then just go around and turn it fresh does the texture change absolutely i think it's just a completely different product so when people come into our restaurant they're like hey this guy makes all of his own pasta how cool um you know they they probably don't connect the two dots that if i if I purchased dried pasta of made with American semolina flour, it probably went through the exact same machine um, that I use, probably just a bigger scale, but the process is exactly the same. So really all it comes down to is the type of flour you're using and the, the texture that you desire. Uh, but the pressure on the big machines is a lot higher though, right? Like the screw pressure is a lot higher. Oh, yeah. Than the, yeah, but that will also changes the temperature of the dough for which it extrudes and that changes the product. So for, for, um, uh, what's this gentleman's name again? Uh, Zach C. Zach, or Zach. Uh, so here's your master hydration to start with, 31%. So start with 31% water by weight uh, of of your coarse, or whatever, of your, sorry, of your semolina flour. Don't don't go down the, the Durham road. So General General Mills, okay, classic standard uh, for, uh, for, for semolina in America. It does a great job. It's very consistent. Um, Start with 31%. If you want to start to add in some, uh, some adjunct grains or some spelt or whatever, start with 5%, climb up to 10%. Um, you've got this little machine so you can have fun. So you can dry it. It does make a different texture. If you don't dry it, just cook, cook it right away. So even if it's sat in the fridge for you know two days, it'll generally keep around the same hydration. The cook time won't change that much. Um, if you leave it out with 
with no cover, obviously it'll dry out and then it'll change the cook time. But um, if you do decide to dry it, you can do the by the windowsill method. You can put a small box fan on it. Um, just you have to rotate the shapes around because if it's sitting or put on a rack, um, but you still have to shake them around because whatever contact point it has, um, it's gonna, it's it's not gonna it's gonna stay wetter in that area, so the drying won't be even. But um, I would I would encourage them to experiment with both um, and see which one you like better, because you might like your dried, you know, spaghetti or bucatini product that's your extruding, but you might hate your rigatoni because the the wall thickness is different or something like that. And that's something we run into at the restaurant all the time is. Uh, you know, how fast can we cook this? <laughs> you know, because we're a restaurant, it's gotta, we gotta get the food out. Um, so sometimes I choose shapes that have thinner wall thicknesses and pair them with, with more popular dishes. And if I don't like the texture of the completed dish, great, start, throw it out, start over. Um, but some pasta shapes do take a lot longer, like noke sarde is sometimes an eight minute cook, even if you just extruded it fresh and didn't dry it. So yeah, I guess it really, it depends where, where Mr. Zach wants to land uh, with, with what he likes. Um, but I would encourage him to try both. There's, there's what do you think more. about what do you think about Nastasia's comment on the doughiness of a lot of people's attempt at fresh pasta? Be otherwise, do you think it's just because they don't have a machine that can achieve a low enough hydration on extrusion because they use the wrong flours? Oh what? yeah, definitely. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So you know, back to what you're saying about the sort of elasticity, plasticity of of like semolina doughs. Um, you know, it, it just creates a different bite. And that's why I encourage people, if you're going to extrude pasta, you can add non-semolina flowers to it, but it will inherently make the dough more gummy, maybe, uh, sometimes softer. And some people like that. They don't mind it. I think really it's like shape dependent. I mean, I mean there's so many shapes you, or dyes you can buy for your extruder. Um, but if you don't like the doughiness of it, perhaps maybe dry it a little bit. Um, I don't like adding eggs at all to my extruded doughs. I know there's people that do that. They'll kind of dose their semolina doughs with egg yolk. Um, I feel like they just do it just for, for color, <laughs> but um, I, I don't, I don't prefer the texture that it, that it, that it kind of contributes to, to that. So I just, I'm a semolina. Real, real, real pasta heads though, hate soft pasta, right? What do, what do you mean? So, what do you mean? Well, just Anastasia, soft you hate a soft pasta, right? And I'm going off of like Mark Ladner's training, you know, and he's pretty good at pasta. But what, what I'm saying is, is that you hate a pasta that doesn't have a texture when you bite into it. That's what right. I mean by kind of soft, yeah. right? You mean like the al dente type? Right. You, you're just not going to accept that you're not going to get that. That's all. Yeah. Well, in the end, but the, the problem is, right, that when you go harder, when you, when you try to go lower hydration with, with, and your technique is that doesn't match up to it. It's you. Can, I guess you can make it harder, but then the outside gets like almost boiled dumpling looking, right? Hmm. No? Yeah. Yeah. I, well, again, I think if you're using, let's say for example, you want to make a, a sheeted dough. It's got eggs in it, and you do that. Uh, you know, you you pull out the measuring cup and you get you know crappy all-purpose flour, throw in three eggs and mix it around, and then you you pass it. I think that makes terrible pasta dough. It just it's not. The right flour, um, the if there's too much egg white in it, I think, and it makes it it makes it too uh, like a wrong type of firmness. It almost like souffles a little bit when you cook it. I don't, I don't yeah. know. Yeah, yeah, it puffs up. Well, this this like the damage, like the damaged starch and the fines and all that are going to inflate, and you're going to get like that, you know. Yeah. So that's why the heavier on the egg yolk. I, I think that's the the better way to do it. it makes that. And you don't want your pasta end up looking like, like a spetzel, right? Dough. Way Although I love spetzel. Yeah, and, yeah, 
<laughs> so what so what we do we actually sheet our um our pastas even if we make garganelli or any of that um that are non-stuffed we sheet them as thin as possible uh, we go as is before it breaks they're extremely fragile that's why we make them and throw them in the freezer immediately so that way we can portion them but the cook on them is like like under 90 seconds and we can put in like whatever filling you want and it basically thaws out in that 90 seconds never curdles like you do uh um, with the cheese or any of that it never curdles in there and the texture on the pasta is like amazing it's super super silky and soft and doesn't have that um any like bit of like odd firmness to it that that you get sometimes with those whole egg style does what the one that i i don't like and i still can't really comprehend is freshly sheeted kitara which is you use that it looks like a guitar right it's a bunch mm -hmm. of strings across a board you have to make a really thick kind of dough or sorry sorry like thickness um before you pass it through to get this like square cut shape by the time you cook that thing it is like a brick in your stomach so i haven't really wrapped my head around wh why you would do that why not just sheet it thinner and make you know a spaghetti style guitar that's a little bit thinner it just might be a, a regional or a, well, but that's a an old home cooking technique people used to have that they'd string across the board and they'd do it did anyone ever do that industrially i mean they do i i guess but i mean do you know what i'm saying i mean you did what yeah. you did, right? Yeah. I mean, I think if you think about it, why don't you pass it through a die? I mean, you are going to get a different texture because you're, you're literally forcing it through an auger and it's going to heat up a little bit. Um, but I don't know. I, I would prefer if that dough was a firmer semolina style dough, not a egg dough. Because, again, it's like you're biting into like a, like a really hard souffléed flour lump. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Yeah. You're really uh, selling it there, the hard, hard souffléed flour lump. What do you got, Matt? Uh, Courtney BST asks in the chat, can you dry fresh pasta in a dehydrator? I have one at home and would love to give handmade dried pasta away as gifts. Yeah, you, you can. Um, I've done it. It does not work great. The problem is I think that it, uh, unless you say your dehydrator is super low, I still think the fan is like too much. So maybe if you like vented a corner of the dehydrator and kind of let a little more air out, it might work. Um, I've, I've done probably eight to 10 tests doing this. I've had zero great results. I think you're better off doing an ambient temperature. It just takes longer. So just leave it out um, uh, on the counter. Uh, make sure it's not, you know, you're, you're not in like, I don't know, like, like a human part of the country. Or if you are, make sure the air conditioner is on and it's not, you know, just a bunch of moisture in your in your kitchen or else it'll take longer and i would flip the pasta often move it around yeah but you need a certain look you need a low enough humidity to do it though you need a low sure. humidity yeah 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 well I, again i have a lot more to learn about about drying pasta but it's almost like if you dry it too fast it just cracks and it's it's useless it'll look fine it'll actually look kind of cool you're like oh look at this thing if i put it in a box and slap the label on it it will look professional but by the time you go to cook it your noodles just they crack they fall apart uh, people always tell me my noodle cracks. Um, so, uh, also like I, uh, I said earlier that, uh, you know, I've somehow lost my touch on, uh, gnocchi and you, you wrote in, you want to give some quick, uh, gnocchi tips while I have you on here? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, I, I did. Have you tested it yet? No, no, no. I've been working on a bunch of other, last night I was working on my favorite burgerloid, the patty melt. That's my, my new thoughts on patty melting. Dave, I, I'm going to, before I get to my gnocchi, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to let you in on something. So every single year. My wife and I, as a Christmas decorate, tree decorating tradition, we make your patty melt. Oh, man. The high-tech one? 
No, no, the, the one you made on, the, you did like an eater video like 10 years yeah, ago. Yeah, yeah. Nice. I, I make it, I make it every year. She loves it. Fatty Mouse Delicious, right? Delicious. What was the one you put like a, a ketchup puck in it or something? That was weird. Well, so I, the original patty melt I did was just the way that I would do it if I was going to do the best job I could do. And then uh, I made it and Eater was like, no, no, no. We came to you because we wanted something kind of like just wacky, something stupid. I was like, all right. And so I was like, what if I – because by the way, like I'm in general on my burgers – I'm a mayonnaise and other kind of, but on a patty melt, the answer is ketchup. Like there isn't really a different answer. So if you don't like ketchup, maybe patty melts aren't for you because the answer to what goes on a patty melt is ketchup. Someone's like, can I put tomatoes on it? No, 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 no. What you do is, is you eat. So patty melt, for those of you that don't know, is rye bread, right? You can go seedless or you can go not seedless, but like, like New York, like Jewish deli style rye bread. Then... Uh, you, you could change the cheese up a little bit, but Swiss, some Swiss, some Emmental style thing. I like Gruyere, whatever. Uh, that right. Then uh, like like really well sautéed onions and a burger, and it should end up like like a grilled like a grilled cheese. So like the taste of this with some ketchup is great. Anyway, so I did one where I low tempt it and all this other stuff. You know, it was, it's delicious, but. Uh, but the one I was working on yesterday was like I was trying to go even kind of lower, so I was I was uh, I was doing something closer to a smash burger on the burger, so that the burger was like small but still all the way across the the rye. It ended up good. I also though switched my technology from butter on the grilled cheese part of it to uh, mayonnaise, and I think I over mayonnaised it last night, so it got a little bit a little bit too greasy. Anyway, I digress. So Eater was like, eh, it's not crazy enough. So then I I did a reverse alginate, which typically I don't use these techniques, uh, but I did a reverse alginate um, ketchup puck, which I then molded inside of a, um, which I then molded inside of a, of a burger and then low temped the burger, then like flash seared, I can't remember where I fried it or flash seared the burger off, put it inside of the pre-grilled, which is still a good idea, by the way, doing a pre-grilled cheese thing to your patty melt separating it and put the burger in between the bread that's already been pressed flat with the grilled cheese and the and and the onions is still a smart move anyway do that and then when you cut it at the table and open it the ketchup self sauces itself out so it's a nice trick but i don't think anyone's ever going to do that in the real life that's just because and then eater for as mad as they got at me for not going crazy enough on the first one they posted both (laughs) yeah anyway uh, good times, but the patty melt is—I'm not going to say it's a hamburger, but it's my favorite burgaloid. Do you for, for your toast? Because I don't remember. Do you uh, do you pre-butter the bread and then put on the griddle, or do you butter the griddle? So the the issue with uh, if you're a butter grilled cheese, and I'm be, I'm saying uh, in all honesty, I'm becoming a convert to the mayonnaise uh, the, the like side of the the dark side of this because you know my whole life I've been a butter guy. Uh, and there is room for a, for a little bit of change, but I butter I butter the surface on the first piece of bread, and then put it down. The problem is when you flip it, it's hard to get the butter all the way under the second piece. And you know that when I was a kid making them, you would just cut little pieces of butter and put them all around, and they would kind of capillary wick in. But you'd always have little dry spots, you know, over your bread, which is not what you want, right? So. I mean, I'm kind of thinking maybe butter on one side and mayonnaise on the other might be the the answer answer. But I mean, obviously nothing simpler than just spreading some mayonnaise on and putting it down. I've never, 
have I done, maybe, I can't remember for the video because at the French culinary butter was free and I, I could just keep a bunch of melted stuff around. I might have done the brush on of melted butter, but I wouldn't recommend that for home just because it's kind of too wasteful for home people, you know? Yeah, that's an extra step you don't need to do. I just say yeah. if, you're, if you're the type of person that leaves your butter out softened to like 24-7, which you should, um, then it's, it's an easy schmear. I don't know. I can't tell you something. So like, so Booker goes through an unconscionable amount of butter. Just to give you an idea, like the, the Liege style waffles that I make, I did some calculations. I think they're roughly a third of a stick of butter. I don't know. There's something ridiculous in the Liege waffles. It's like, uh, it's a pound of butter for 13. Anyway, it's crazy amount of butter in it. Booker then adds like a half stick of butter to the Liege waffle in all the crannies. So he's, he, so I lied when I said he only eats sushi and candy. He also, you know, Elvis style consumes, you know, uh, like sticks of butter at a time and still has an unhealthily low, uh, BM, uh, you know, body weight. Anyway. Um, he's a growing young man. He deserves butter. Yeah. Yeah. I mean like, yeah, I'm not against, obviously I'm not against the butter. Um, but here's another little thing he has about it is that he doesn't like soft butter. So like I had one of those butter cloches where it doesn't go rancid, where you store it and it, it puts the butter under the surface of water when it's being stored without getting it wet so that it, you don't get oxygen in so it doesn't go rancid on you. And he's like, uh, butter should be hard, dad. I'm like, no, you're wrong. He's like, yeah, I don't care what you think. That's the way I want it. So now no butter can be tempered in this house or Booker won't use it. Do you just hide some like in another room? You can't do that? I guess. I don't yeah. know, but like, again, like, I mean, I have more butter in my fridge at any one moment than most people who aren't cooking professionally at this point. Like, you know, I, it, once I go below three pounds in butter reserves and strategic butter reserves, I start getting nervous. You know what I mean? Same with eggs. Like if I don't have at least two dozen fresh eggs in my fridge at any one time, I start like, you know, feeling like something bad is going to happen to me. And that's not a pandemic thing. That's just the way I cook. Um, but yeah, I guess I could spare a stick. Hmm. <laughs> Just keep, keep it like underneath your bed. So yeah, but no sometime, one... sometime around five or six, man, maybe even more, maybe maybe like even longer now, I switched from being a butter on my bread guy to an olive oil on my bread guy. That's also good. Dude, yeah. I like what, when, when you've been in our restaurant, did you find it strange that we serve butter in, in our, with our bread in our Italian restaurant? No, I didn't I remember that. I don't know. I, I, I didn't register it. Do you do both? No, we just served the, the cultured butter because we do the, the cultured the, butter is delicious. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it makes total sense. I just I've always had this like internal fear that one day some uh, super uh, Italian guy is going to walk into my uh, to my kitchen and, and shoot me in the face for serving butter with bread in an Italian restaurant. But yeah, most of really that care. most of that generation is dead, so you don't need to worry about it. Good point. Good point. Bujali so, died like a year ago, so you're good. So the, uh, the 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 gnocchi was was a bit of a bit of an interesting thing we wanted to do at the restaurant. So um, I prefer the potato gnocchi, not the densey lumpy uh, flower bomb gnocchi. So we go the I'll call it the the Marco Canora method, which is it's russet potato and double zero flour and salt, and that's it. So we. We did this method, I've, I've made it a thousand and one times. Sometimes you get inconsistent uh, potatoes, blah, 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 or you're not, you're not doing it right. So you just, you turn into a chef on the situation. You start weighing everything and that's the only way to do it. So you weigh the milled potato. So bake off X amount of potatoes. Uh, we have a ratio we follow and we uh, make sure just we cook the hell out of the potato. Like you're gonna make baked potatoes for dinner at home 
cook them an extra half an hour, like just leave them in the oven um, and then scoop out uh, the guts out of it. Uh, the most important part is that you have to be ready. So you have to have all of your everything kind of like your flour out, all this kind of stuff, the salt out. You have to have your water boiling, ready to go, or else you're going to be in trouble. Um, as soon as the dough cools down, it gets gummy. And if you work the gnocchi dough while it's gummy, it gets more gummy after you cook it. So um, what we do is we pass the, the potato through a food mill. Um, you can obviously do this with a potato ricer at home. It's not an issue. Um, so oh, hand, handheld potato ricers, the potato ricer attachments for, for, uh, stick blenders sound stupid are great, are great. Go ahead. What is it attaches to a stick blender? Yeah. There's a stick blender ricing attachment. It, well, it goes in the opposite direction. So it's got like a little food mill, like, like, uh, wings underneath you push it down and it forces it up through the ricer, but it's real quick. And you know, you get those like uh, those like like Mont Blanc chestnut like like streams of things coming out of the top of them. You do a couple of hits into it so you're not over processing it and it's fast and don't have to clean it out because I hate food mills. It's a it's a tool that only Europeans, I think, have. No one in the United States makes enough potatoes for this to be an issue. And so they're very hard to find. But I, I have a couple. But uh, yeah. So so we found at the restaurant because that's what we do. We want everything to work on the pickup. Um, so uh, we made a little discovery. If we add just a very small amount of cornstarch to to the dough, um, when we add the flour portion, because we sift it over so there's no lumps, the very small amount of cornstarch makes all of the difference um, in holding the, the stability of the gnocchi so it doesn't fall apart. Because the idea is you want as little flour as possible to hold it together, but you also don't want it to, you know, become a, a total mess in, in the boil. So... Um, after you, you get your rolled out, you make your gnocchi shapes. You can probably watch 28 videos on the internet of how to roll the gnocchi. Um, and then we boil them in salted water for about two to three minutes, depending on the size of it. And then we shock them, which sets the starch. So you boil them and shock them, which sounds counterintuitive because you're like, Hey, I want to eat these gnocchi now, but you have to shock them because it sets the starch. And then we portion them, do whatever. And at the restaurant, when order comes in, we heat up our sauce of choice, whatever that is, could be a butter glaze, could be a cheesy sauce, could be, uh, you know, tomato-based marinara, whatever. Um, Cacio pepe style is very popular for gnocchi in the restaurant. So we do this, and they, you just heat them up in the sauce. Don't reboil them. You don't need to do that. Step saver. Just put it right into the sauce, heat it up together with the sauce. Uh, liaise a little fat in there, cheese, whatever, and serve it and eat it, and they're great. They also work good as, as like, uh, after you blanch shock them, to make a sort of a gnocchi casserole. It works really good. We do that for holiday stuff. We did this this past year. We made like a truffled uh, sort of uh, Mornay bechamel sauce, fonduta, and then um, put the blanched gnocchi in there. So I gave them instructions, bake it in the oven for X amount of time. And it's like this cheesy like potato gnocchi pie. It worked really good. Hmm, hmm. All right, now, how hot are the potatoes when you're scooping them? Super hot. You got to burn your hands, dude. Yeah. So what poor sap does that job? Nothing is crappier than pulling an oven out of uh, pulling a potato out of the oven and then having to get the flesh out of it right now. I hate it. Yeah. You just got to be ready. Put like double, triple glove up. You got to spend the couple cents on gloves, right? Hold the kitchen towel. You know. I did some tests on peeling, uh, peeling, wrapping, and baking potatoes, but I don't have anything conclusive yet. Wouldn't it, wouldn't it just dry out on the, after you, <clears throat> on the exterior anyway? 
not not if you wrap it right. I'm working on it. I'm working on it. Now, let me ask you this. Since you clearly have a lot of potato skins lying around, do you have a good uh, potato skin recipe? Because most are garbage. They come out either leathery, they're not crispy. I haven't gotten the the true, like, you know, uh, Simplot style, you know, pre, you know, TGI Fridays potato uh, potato peel recipe down yet. You got yeah. something for me? No. We, we either throw them out or snack on them with a little bit of salt, maybe a little olive oil in the morning. It's a good – Noki's done in the morning, right? So – it's one of the first things we do when we come in, so it's it's a good breakfast. So we just eat them or throw them out. So no, I don't I don't have a potato skin thing. But most of the time, they're like it's like an a, like an oil mop in your in your deep fryer. It's kind of rough. I know, I know, and they're never as crunchy as I want. How the heck do the pros do it? Someone oh, out there, let me know how they're done. Who who's a pro at potato skins? You're saying like TGI Fridays? TGI Fridays, yeah, but they don't make them. It's like Simplot or like someone you know someone in Conagra makes those things for them, right? So, because that's what they're doing. So, I mean, I, I just don't know how they do it. I've never had good. This is also, I know a lot of people out there like to make their French fries with the skins on. I don't really understand that because I've never had the skin of a potato that I have worked with get as crunchy as the non-skin side. But it's the flavor. So, you know what? I think, um, what's his name? Heston Blumenthal did this. You, if you're going to do a, a blanche, a water blanche, on your fries, put the skins inside of a sachet and put them into the water and almost make it like a potato skin stock and then pull them out and then blanch your, blanch your French fries. I mean, I have infused flavors into things when I'm boiling with the French fries. I don't know. I don't know. Right now, I'm working on, I'm working on the potato chip. I have some, Nastasia sent me her favorite uh, West Coast potato chips. Uh, you want to call out the brand, Nastasia? I don't have them here. You have them. Where do you want to call it out? I can't because they're they're up in a thing. I'd have to go leave the okay, radio well, show. I don't know. <laughs> we'll talk about it next time. But I, like Nastasia doesn't mind a, a dark chip. She likes a hard and not hard in a bad way. Because sometimes hard means bad in fried goods. But like crunchy, she likes a crunchy AF like and doesn't mind it dark. So like kettle style crunchy mm, yeah. thick thick chip. She I don't likes know, I thick know and they, they kind of burn. You can tell when they're kind of kind of burnt. That's no good. I mean, I don't know. This yeah, is I don't argument. Like yeah. Listen. Are like, you guys against the, the, the Cape Cod chip? That's like the gold standard. Cape Cods are relatively blonde. I think they must be putting a vacuum on that uh, on that thing oh. uh, to getting them uh, blonde. We, you know, we used to, when we didn't want things to color up, we would just hit them with acid beforehand, right? But um, in the current test that I've been running – like I would put like six different potato chips out and Dax, Jen, my wife, Jen, always went for the ones that she, she doesn't like a greasy potato chip. She's not afraid of consuming infinite amounts of fat, right? She'll guzzle the oil. That's not the problem. She doesn't like greasy chips, right? And I'm making, I'm emphasizing the Z to emphasize, you know, why she doesn't like it greasy. Dax interestingly because i wouldn't have pegged him for this is interested in maximum potato flavor so the like og kettle style which are fundamentally just chipped directly into the fryer he always prefers those even though they're darker in general because he says they have the most potato flavor which is something i haven't thought about before versus all of my blanche ones you know that's and a good point I think the average person is not going to make a potato stock to do their their blanching with, but you know maybe. I don't know. Does anyone does anyone on this call? Do, do you guys wipe your hand while you eat the potato chips on your shirt or pants, or do you grab a napkin like like a polite person? Uh, 
Okay, so the shirt is always a bad call because people can see your shirt. Yeah. But it, do you do it like instinctively? Like it's just the closest thing to wipe your hands off? No, I just leave my hand. What I actually do, like when I'm testing in the real life, what I get is I'll eat, my hand will be filthy, I'll hold it in the air, and then I'll walk over to the sink, use the foot pedals, and wash it off. Oh, okay. Well, foot pedals are nice. I'm going to do a thing eventually on foot pedals. I have to do something on foot pedals uh, because they're awesome. Well, and then the like, company that you use for all the parts will change on you and they won't sell the parts anymore. I know. Right. I know. Well, John, speaking of it, do you have the uh, do you have the information on the new company that you're recommending to replace Mark Power? I haven't had the, the heart to call any different company and actually run through all the part numbers to see what the changeovers are. But Well, so when I spoke to... Mark Powers or the company yesterday, they recommended Master Marketing Sunlo, S-U-N-L-O-W, but I'm not quite sure it fits the bill. We need to look into it a little more. So depressing. Look, if TNS Brass goes out, and by the way, here's something I'm going to say about buying equipment. Once, once we know people are starting restaurants again and you're buying equipment, or even at home, maybe, I mean, you know, commercial faucets are different from something else, from, from home ones in, in some ways. Um, Every contractor, I don't understand this. I don't understand whether contractors get paid off by crappy faucet manufacturers or what. But you're paying so much money, right? And they're always going to recommend that you get a cheaper faucet. Always. Cheaper angle stops, cheaper faucets, right? And the truth is, is that TNS Brass, who's, you know, far from ever giving me anything if they you know as a company like they've always been kind of a little bit of jerkweeds because they won't deal with humans directly tns brass is phenomenally expensive if you pay retail there is no reason to pay retail for tns brass and you you often don't as especially as a a, a cook when you're you know because you have a lot of other things to worry about but if you just go online on ebay or anywhere else, you can get TNS brass, not like at half off, you can usually get it at a third of retail, right? And then just hand it to your contractor and be like, install this because the, I'm not going to say anything bad about Fisher or any of the other crappy faucets, Crown, the ones that they, other people try to sell you, but they will work fine for six months. And you'll be like, see, there's no problem. And then they will start to break. Other people's foot pedals will start to break. The faucets won't shut off right because the people that you hire to work in your restaurant are going to be brutal on that faucet. So like a high quality faucet that you can depend on and whose parts are easily changed is a blessing. I don't know. What do you think, Joel? What do you think about uh, high quality faucets? I mean, definitely. Uh, the, the the problem that I see, especially within restaurants, because I'm going to bring it up all the time, is that if if you buy it, there's someone there to break it. Literally, literally within within probably 14 seconds of that item arriving, so, someone's going to break it, no matter right, what. But like like a real TNS brass, if you can afford to l- wait and look on eBay and get one, they're so robo. If you've ever used like real like. The, the, the really nice chrome, really thick TS brass faucet stuff and they're, they're the real spray arms, they're so robo. Yes, they'll still get broken, but it's going to take, instead of 30 seconds, it'll take like a minute and a half and you can like, you can replace the, the, the parts. They're serviceable. Yeah. And for God's sakes, get your contractor to screw the dang faucet down firmly because once once things start spinning and they're not firm anymore then people brutalize it as it hits the beginning and the end another thing go quarter turn 
I know I've said this on angle stops a million times, a million times. But if you if you have like uh, if you if you have valves on your faucets that are multi-turn, people will gorilla them at both both ends, which is going to very quickly ruin your valve. And those those ones strip out a lot faster, right? Yeah. So if you get the totally agreed, yeah, it's it's terrible. I did quarter turn all the way. Quarter turn, quarter turn, and you know. I'm going to say something that's a little counterintuitive. I like the wrist handle ones because they're just less filthy, but it is true that, you know, but they're easy to gorilla. You could put a lot of force on a quarter, on a quarter turn with a wrist handle, but it, I find it superior from a sanitary, uh, uh, maybe I'll do a video on it at some point. All right. All right. This episode is brought to you by Hearst Ranch. The Hearst family has raised cattle on California's central coast since 1865. Today, Hearst Ranch's signature product is their 100% grass-fed, completely hormone and antibiotic-free beef. The Hearst Ranches have always treated their animals with great care. Their cattle live a completely natural existence as foragers and grazers. Well-managed grazing fertilizes the land naturally, sustains a seasonal rhythm to the ranches, and produces a remarkable meat whose flavor is the authentic taste of the American West. Hearst Ranch beef is available seasonally, May through August, in select Whole Food markets throughout California, and all year round at their retail locations in San Simeon and Paso Robles. And now, HRN listeners in Arizona, Nevada, and California can get Hearst Ranch beef delivered right to their door through Larder Meat Company. Go to lardermeatco.com and shop the 100% grass-fed box to stock your freezer with Hearst Ranch beef. That's L-A-R-D-E-R, meatco.com. Learn more about the storied history, farming practices, and conservation efforts of Hearst Ranch at hearstranch.com. This episode is supported by Nourish and Flourish. Nourish and Flourish features behind-the-scenes stories about artisans, producers, farmers, growers, and other makers in America, along with delicious and wholesome recipes. The latest issue of Nourish and Flourish is a special artisanal gift guide showcasing some of America's finest products, including everything from the farm and garden to eco-friendly home goods, kitchen and cooking essentials, bath and body, original art, blown glass, seasonal recipes, and so much more. Shop online to support local and buy local. Together, we can make a difference. Learn more at nourishandflourish.site. We, we got to go pretty soon, but Devin asked for a clarifying question. He said, yes, for Joel, when you said pasta dryer is 130 degrees, do you mean Fahrenheit or Celsius? What? Oh, uh, I was I was referring to what someone told me because I haven't tested my gigantic pasta dryer yet, uh, but it goes up to 130 Fahrenheit. That, that's around, I think, where, where it caps out um, for the initial, and then it, like, it cools down for the rest of the drying. But it has to go through like... I don't know if it's like trying to like flash off a bunch of moisture that's on the pasta um, and it just has to evacuate really fast. I'm not really sure behind the signs behind that because I'm just diving into it now. But um, if you're going to use a dehydrator at home, I would certainly go as low as possible. Yeah, other- kind of mimic like, you know, it's a it's a nice uh, tempered day. You know, it's mild out. Uh, try to mimic that sort of climate in the dehydrator. Look, there's another there's another issue, right? that like that needs to be addressed on a on a dehydrator 
temperature is not air temperature is not a valid way to measure this stuff you need to know the relative humidity so that's going to be the difference between the wet bulb and the dry bulb temperature and no small home dehydrator excalibur style has a way to measure the relative humidity so if you're at 130 degrees fahrenheit and you're you know and 100 percent humidity right so let's say louisiana right? Like that is going to be a much different experience for the pasta than being at 122, let's say 122, something that could happen in Louisiana, although it doesn't, that's not that hot, but versus 122 uh, in Phoenix at, you know, at like 8% humidity, it, your pasta is going to experience something very, very different from a drying standpoint. So the temperature, when you're talking about especially low temperature drying, specifying temperature as separate from your humidity isn't going to give you anything reproducible. Does that make sense? You know what I'm saying? It's like, and I don't know why people don't, I don't know why no one's cracked the thing where they, they deal with both, especially because at the low temperatures at which you're dehydrating, it's relatively trivial to at least tell you what the number is. It might not be relatively trivial to control it, but it's relatively trivial for, for you to know what, what, the number is. And since Devin did write in, I'm assuming this is Devin Patel, uh, Nastasia, uh, it's late, but Devin wanted Phil Bravo to sing Dreaming of a White Christmas. Think we can get that uh, next year? No. Why not? You don't think he'll do it? No, I already asked him when I saw that question come in. Oh, and he said no? No. All right, well, we have a year to work on him. And also, Devin would like uh, Jackie Molecules to know Right when he's going uh, uh, about spending the on, on wine on a date, the amount or price of wine purchased is an investment. So a cheap bottle is like one night, and fifty bottles is like a marriage proposal status. But I don't really know what that means. And if you're investing, Devin, in a nice wine so that you can get someone thinking that you are good, that could be an investment that lasts a lifetime. Right. Right? I don't know. And they also wanted to uh, say, and maybe any of you have experience here, Devin is making a lacto-fermented, or was, making a lacto-fermented mustard and uh, was wondering about the other spices like uh, uh, onion, paprika, celery seed. Put it in before the ferment or after the ferment or both. Uh, I would, if you have, if you're going to do this on an ongoing basis, I would definitely do an A-B test. I would do a little before and a little after um, and see whether or not there's a, a fundamental difference. Most pickling recipes have you put this stuff in before. And I think a lot of that might be that a lot of the old school pickling recipes are based on some of the antimicrobial or anti-bad microbial effects that a lot of these spices have. Um, but, you know, if you're not worried about that, I don't really know whether anyone has done the you know, the, the kind of overarching study of what it tastes like when you add it before versus what you add um, after. And uh, you also said that you noted that when you were cooking soup and you added vinegar to it, that the acidity from the vinegar uh, went away, but the acidity in other things doesn't. It just makes perfect sense to me because vinegar is, as we know, one of the very few volatile uh, organic cooking acids. Hmm? That makes sense? Anyone? Anyone? Sense? I prefer cooking on acid more than cooking with acid. Oh my god, have you done that? No, but I but in my in my dreams, I feel like it would it would it would be a lot more fun these days. I've never taken any sort of hallucinogen, but I just don't think I would react well. <laughs> I don't know. So maybe, like, maybe we can, can we all just trip together and see what happens? I mean, it might be a fun experiment. I, I don't know. I've never tried it. Nastasia is not interested in hallucinogens, right? Or you are? I can't remember. No. No, it's supposed I to have a lot of them. part of your brain or something. I don't know. I just don't know that I would. I would. I don't know that I would come back from it. 
but are we are we mentioning so one of the reasons Nastasia doesn't want to come back right now to this side of the country is that in one of these major storms we had because her house is right on the sound and the sound the Long Island Sound is a relatively protected body of water so having your house on the sound is a, is a lot different from having it on the Atlantic Ocean where you can get like where you get pummeled on the regular right no one expects that their house is right on the sound is going to get obliterated and yet somehow some wind kicked up in one of these like you know cyclone situations over here that we had and it was the blizzard two weeks ago wiped wiped like and soaked all of your stuff right yeah broke the windows and now all the windows or the windows facing the sound are boarded up so my friend went there yesterday and she was like yeah, it's pretty depressing in here with the windows boarded, and they can't fix them until it gets hot there, so I don't know when that is. Why? Are they grouted in with cement? Yeah. Uh. And so um, I was like, well, maybe I should spend a couple more weeks here because, I don't know, looking yeah. at boarded-up windows inside alone would be super sad. Why do, you, you know, why do you think that we deserve anything more than that? No, I considered that, Dave. I knew that you would you would want me there, but I, everyone's telling me there's no point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and are you allowed to tell about uh, the dream in which I was unreasonable? Yeah, last two nights ago, I dreamt that Dave made made me make a football sized uh, field of fudge, and he walked away to take. Uh, something to take care of his family. Some family. Yeah, you said my dog was uh, was causing problems. I had to go. No, take it was care something family related. So it was definitely something like your kids or your dogs. And the fudge seized up before I could make it all the way around the football field to stir it. So all the nuts had just stayed on one side of the thing. And then Dave came back and was like, "The hell! Like you're supposed to stir the entire thing and all this." And I woke up like frantically, like, "Oh my god! I really effed that up." And then I called Dave and told him, and literally his response was, well, why didn't you think of another solution to, like, make sure that the nuts were spread more? Like, as if it were a real <laughs> yeah. thing. I played right into it. I was like, I, I felt like I would have disappointed her if I didn't play. I was like, this, here's what I said exactly. I was like, Nastasia, yeah. listen, if you didn't think it was going to work, you knew we were making a football field of fudge. You knew we were doing this. You saw me show up. You saw the ingredients go into the football field. If you didn't think it was going to work, why didn't you say something then? Why do you wait? Yeah, but then I was like, why did you run off to go take care of it? You should have, we got in a whole... Five minutes. You couldn't just stir the fudge for five minutes. Five minutes. You ruined the whole football field. Five minutes. So that's what it's like, even in dreams. (laughs) Normally, I recommend against sharing dreams with other people because they tend to be, like, boring and way more nonsensical than you think. But for you guys, I recommend not sharing because it leads to actual uh, arguments. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, so on the way out, since we have some chefs and other people, uh, Chef Joanna, uh, you know, uh, listener, uh, says, and sometimes into the chat room, which we always appreciate, can uh, Dave please comment on ceramic knives, yay or nay? They make me nervous. I have like some petties, some pairings that uh, they they make me nervous because I always feel like I can't resharpen them. Like when stuff happens to them, and I've broken the tip off of one. But Wiley uh, loves them. Wiley he has a, a slicer he uses sometimes. He loves the, the ceramics uh, for the price to slice ratio. Well, what do you think, Joel? Um, I don't I don't keep things that are too precious or fragile. In fact, I. 
probably 10 years ago, I stopped spending money on fancy knives because I just, uh, I don't, I don't take good care of them. I have, I have a good amount of utility knives and some Corin style, uh, stuff that I've held on to over the years. And I buy the, the ones that are a little bit less expensive. And then when I'm done with them, I just buy another one because they're like 70, 80 bucks after two or three years, I get another one. But the ceramic knives, um, I had one bad experience when I was a young cook and I lobbed off my knuckle with it. So I pretty much decided at that point that I don't ever want to be near one ever again. Oh, yeah? Hmm. Yeah. Inter- hey, here's something else interesting. You know, how, I don't know whether any, if anyone's heard this show, like a lot of them, uh, when I do talk about knife sharpening, I always mention my dislike for um, the asymmetrical sharpening, sharpening that some uh, Japanese Western knives have where they'll have a different angle on one side of the blade than the other. I either prefer completely symmetrical old school European or completely traditional chisel chisel grind uh, on um, that they have, you know, in Japanese knives. And Wiley was like, well, you know, if you just um, take some time the first time you use it and then just keep going on one side of a Japanese Western, you can turn a Japanese Western into a chisel grind because they're so thin, it's actually not that hard to do it. And so he's been all of his Japanese Western uh, thin ones are um, are sharpened chisel grind, which or he is... pushed them for a ninety ten from a seventy thirty. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. yeah. Wow. And so, and I think he's even wor- the, the only issue with the Japanese Western is is that like uh, if you want to go a true zero on the flat side, you need to it needs to be concave uh, on the bottom so that the so that the spine edge and then the blade edge can rest to really take it off. So most people do do a very slight relief on the back side just because their knives aren't like concave enough to sharpen like a true chisel chisel. But I look I think anyone who I like know and deal with a lot who's kind of opinions who, who don't take opinions from other people without like actually thinking about it themselves, none of them really love the asymmetrical grinds. They're just because I'll tell you this, there, there's kind of like people who buy very sharp knives but then don't want to take the time to sharpen them. Anything that gets in your way of sharpening is bad. So if you have a sharpening system that, that is too complicated for you to use on a regular basis, then I would rather you use something that makes your knife slightly less sharp right? But that you could do on the regular because the overall, the integral of sharpness over time will be a much larger number if you can, like on the regular, keep it relatively sharp than if you take it up to some high level of sharpness once a year. And so like, you know, I do, I would say, you know, on knives that I use a lot, I almost, you know, weekly I'll touch them up. I'm not talking professionally, I'm talking home use. You know what I mean? I'll, I'll, I'll weekly hit them up or so. Some knives, the carbon ones that sharpen really well but are a pain in the butt because they rust, I'll sharpen them every time I use them, right? So I'll, I'll just sharpen them every time I use them because it's not that hard. So getting a knife that's easy to sharpen and getting a sharpening regime that you can actually tolerate, that you can live with, that's fast and livable is more important, I think, than getting the ultimate sharpness out of a knife. I don't know. It's my. That almost sounds like health advice. That was good. Yeah, but don't you agree with me though? Like, like, yeah. like I have some of these super fancy sharpeners, but it's like a half-hour thing. I got to set up the base. I got to do the soaking. I got to set the angles. I got the different with the guides and all this other stuff. And you know yeah. what the I, I don't like knives that are that are too sharp because if you put too fine of an edge on it. It does that thing where it sticks into the cutting board. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Also, I think a lot of people, when they, when they, 
they sharpen and they get it too sharp. Remember, there's absolute sharpness and then there's like how good are you for the angles that you choose. I don't go hyper, hyper uh, narrow on my angles. I prefer a slightly stronger edge. So, you know, if you're going to, if you're using one of these super modern steels and you're going to a very, very, very small angle on the bottom of the blade, yeah, I mean, A, that sharpness isn't going to get maintained that long, and B, you're going to stick. Although I do like it when my uh, traditional carbon Japanese ones, I take them to that level of sharpness where it's just like stupid sharp, where like it'll cut you if you look at it wrong. I mean, I do like that. You know what I mean? Um, anyways, my, uh, my, my feelings on, uh, on sharpening. <laughs> All right, well, uh, we Joel, Joel, thanks for uh, coming on and answering some pasta questions. And so I know we have a lot of questions for uh, next week, but hopefully they're ones that uh, I can answer without having to pull in uh, experts. So maybe we'll we'll just rip through some next week. John, John and Nastasio will try to keep me, keep me on track, maybe. Yep, we can do that. All right. Thanks, Joel. Cooking Issues. Cooking Issues is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.